a clear and bold call for Timothy to persevere and to us to persevere in spite of suffering. A letter of lament, literally Paul's last words. 2 Timothy chapter four. I don't know if Paul could have known this to be true or not. When we think about Paul's charge, two weeks ago we talked about Paul's last charge to Timothy, verses one to eight, 2 Timothy one to eight. And verse seven is that famous verse. And I don't know if Paul could have known that this verse would, be, would have been anointed to literally spur on generations of God's people to be humble servants ministering in the name of Jesus, even in the face of hardship and suffering. But as I look back over my own life and over church history, it seems that this verse has been anointed to spur us on in ministry, even in the face of hardship and suffering over many, many generations. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And so he gives Timothy, Timothy that charge, and then he will conclude the letter. He'll talk about some of the immediate circumstances of what's happening in his life at the very, very end. He will give some greetings, and then he will offer his uh, benediction. It's very personal. Our text today, 9 to 22, it's very personal. It's very emotional, as we might expect it to be as he finishes this uh, letter. Loneliness, sadness, anger, deep concern, as he prepares his mind for his imminent martyr's death. He will speak about his needs. He's, he's got relational needs. He's got emotional needs. He's got physical needs. He speaks about that. He'll give a testimony of a restored relationship that was so broken, it was beyond repair, and God has restored it. He'll speak of that testimony and also of relational brokenness and betrayal that is still in his life at the end. There's passion for gospel ministry to keep moving forward and not to quit. He will hand that passion for gospel ministry. There is work to be done, and Timothy's charge is to continue to lead gospel ministry, and there is this deep resolve in him at the end of his life that Jesus is Emmanuel. God is truly with us, and God truly strengthens us uh, in our lives. So I'm gonna start with uh, verses 9 to 18. I'll read this, a longer uh, passage here. Uh, we'll talk about this, and then we'll finish up uh, the end. So this is his kind of immediate circumstances. Again, he has just given his final charge, and then he transitions in verse 9 to really kind of personal remarks, a personal concluding of the letter. And he starts in verse 9, to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. What might Paul be feeling by telling Timothy, his son in the faith, to come to him quickly? What emotion? Anyone? Fear? Need some support? What else? What's that? I can't hear you. Urgency? There's urgency to the matter? Loneliness? Full of emotion. Come, do your best. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me, and he's gone on to Thessalonica. He left. He left me. He left the church. He left the faith. He's gone. 
Crescens has gone on to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. I got Luke with me. But I need, you, I need you to come to me as well, Timothy. And when you come, also get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to, to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus and Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metalworker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. <laughs> you too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, he's speaking now. He's going to go back and speak. He was, Paul was in a, a Roman prison once before in his life, and so he's referring back to that, and he was released from that first Roman imprisonment. Now he is convinced that his time for departure is here. But he's speaking about his first defense, and he goes, when I was in Rome, prison in Rome first, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. But may it not be held against them. Somehow, some way, Paul is releasing them. He's releasing bitterness and resentment. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through, through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Most scholars that I read this week believe that he's probably referring to Rome. He was released from that first imprisonment in Rome. And so he's been released. Um, we don't really know. But that's what most scholars I read believe he's speaking about. The Lord will rescue me. Again, he's at, his, he's at the end. He knows he's going to die for his faith. And he writes this in verse 18. The Lord will rescue me. From every evil attack, and he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom to him, to Jesus be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is certainly strong. Like he's a strong personality, right? He is gifted and strong and full of faith and full of courage. Also, Paul is a human being, and he is in need, and he makes that pretty known in this passage. Paul is not a, he is not a superhuman. He's a real person, just like all of us are in this room, and he has wants and he has needs at the very end of his life, and to me, they're pretty evident as he writes these concluding remarks to Timothy. And the first thing I would point out to you is pretty clear he has relational and emotional needs here. Verse nine, can you please, Timothy, do everything you can to come to me? Literally, like, literally, I'm lonely. I only have Luke here and I need you here with me. And also, like, bring Mark. Bring Mark with you. He needs their support. He needs their encouragement. Mark is the testimony of a relational restoration in Paul's life. If you don't know the backstory, I'll read a few verses out of Acts 15. But basically, uh, at the end of Paul's first missionary journey, uh, his team of people in that first missionary journey included Barnabas and John Mark. 
and they're about to go on their second missionary journey. And Barnabas is like, great. He's, Paul's like, let's go visit all the churches that we planted in the first journey, and we're going to go again to strengthen them. And Barnabas is like, great, let's go. We're going to bring John Mark. And Paul's like, no, we're not. No, we're not. Because he deserted us in Pamphylia, and he ain't coming. It's in Acts 15, and it says that there was a sharp, a sharp disagreement that arose between them, probably between Barnabas and Paul, but maybe Barnabas and John Mark and Paul. So Paul takes Silas, and they go one way, and Barnabas takes John Mark, and they go another way. You're talking about, you're talking about men who are brothers in Christ, who have labored, who have a relational fracture in gospel ministry, and they split. Have you ever seen this? in your life before? Have you ever heard of this in your life before? It's a real story about real men and real ministry fracturing. And we're not privy to the restoration process that took place, but we know there was a restoration because Paul tells Timothy, bring John Mark with you. I need his encouragement. He's been helpful to me. So again, we don't know how they restored their relationship, but we know it got restored. And I just want to offer some thoughts on this uh, for you to consider. This is not scripture, uh, but I have been a part of a number of relational restorative processes in my own in my own life, in like relationships that I have with people, and pastorally, I've been privileged and honored to be a part of this as well. And uh, in my experience. And again, my experience, and I'm offering this to you for your own consideration, three essential things have to be present for a relational, rest, a relational restorative process to take place to a place of healing and trust, or things remain fractured and restoration remains elusive. One, pride has to leave the room. And humility must lead the way forward. That's one. Two, bitterness and resentment also have to leave. And asking for forgiveness and granting forgiveness has to lead. This requires a time, process, Counsel, more time, more process, more counsel, truckloads of humility, truckloads of forgiveness. Third thing, it takes both parties to walk this all the way out toward relational restoration and healing. If both people in the fracture don't come with humility and a willingness to ask for forgiveness, which is me taking personal responsibility for my part. So it's more instead of like, when there's bitterness and resentment, it's like it's a lot of you statements. Like, well, you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and every, everybody's got rights to be angry and bitter. Like, that's probably true. And it's like the visual that I use in my counseling office is like, here's like this great divide, and you got rights on this side for sure to be angry Afraid, all the, all the emotions. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna lob a 
hand grenade over this to you to blow your side up. And then while you're doing that, I'm going to throw one over to you. And it's just, it's not a great process toward healing relationally. So, but it's, it's easy to do that because you got rights. You got your rights. And the only way I have seen like real healing happen in real relational discord is when people let go of their own rights and they stop making you statements and they start making I statements. I did this. I did this. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? Then we can get some traction. So that's just my perspective on it for your consideration. Um, What I see in this passage is we have both relational healing and we have relational discord still happening in Paul's life. Uh, Alex, so we have Mark, but then we have Demas and Alexander, our ongoing stories of relational brokenness. Uh, Demas loved the world too much, so he deserts Paul in the ministry. He'd left, he's gone. Paul probably, I don't know, hurt, angry, frustrated, I don't know. Do you think Paul has... Feelings and emotions and thoughts about Demas? I think so. Alexander, the metal worker, has become a real threat to the mission of the gospel to the degree that Paul tells Timothy, you have to be on your guard with him. In other words, you have to create some relational boundaries with this guy. So we got a testimony of relational restoration, John Mark, and we have a story of Relational boundaries and be on your guard, Demas and Alexander, the metal worker. By the way, side note, you might remember Paul mentioning a guy named Alexander in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And he said this about Alexander. You might remember this. I have handed them over to Satan that they might not blaspheme. Just a light and fluffy little comment from 1 Timothy 1 for you this morning. There's no way for us to know if the Alexander in 1 Timothy 1 is the same Alexander the metal worker in 1 Timothy 4. Uh, perhaps, the, perhaps that Paul says the metal worker distinguishes the Alexander in 1 Timothy 4 from the Alexander in 1 Timothy 1, but we don't really know. It could be the same person. Uh, I got no answers for you other than that. So again, that's just the side note. But what I wanna point out is Paul has guys like Luke, Mark, Timothy in his life, encouragers, helpers, brothers. And he has guys like Demas and Alexander in his life, broken, boundaries needed, be on your guard. Pursuing relational restoration needs time, process, and counsel. Having relational boundaries with people also needs time, process, and counsel. Both, both need spiritual discernment and walking this out relationally with people in our lives. And again, this, the context for all these relationships is ministry. You people should be getting along with each other. You're like on the same team. You're on the same mission, proclaiming the same message, right? And there's all this, maybe maybe you don't know anything about that. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. This is real life, right? This is deep water. This is real life. And I know that many of us have wounding from relationship. And what I love about this 
passage is that uh, the example of Paul and John Mark uh, gives us encouragement in our own relationships as we seek restoration in broken relationships in our own lives. And also, I think it also gives us equipping to know if it's not mutual in humility and forgiveness and that we're both willing to come to the table with humility and forgiveness, sometimes there needs to be boundaries in that space as well. I, uh, I trust Lindsay and her discernment around uh, relationship. Uh, she's, just, she's very discerning. And so I texted her this section in my notes like last night. And she's on a trip again in Phoenix watching Ellie perform today. And I was like, I need your thoughts. And so I just woke up to a text. She goes, I'm not sure if this is what you're looking for, but this is what comes out of me. And so here's Pastor Lindsay for you, her her. Thoughts, not mine. She says, quote, I, we don't want to run away from conflict, but rather face conflict in the way of grace with honor and humility. We must learn to pray for one another, trusting in God to work out his heart in others, but more importantly, in myself, in myself, so that we can do our part in the restoration process. So a lot of relational emotional needs. Also some physical needs. Bring my cloak. Like just a heavy outer garment. And it'd be like one of you saying like, I need my patty puffy. I really need that. I really need that. Winter's coming and that coat is really sentimental. And it's real warm, and this gel cell's really cold. And maybe it was like a, maybe Paul took that cloak with him on a missionary journey. It might be sentimental. We don't really know, but we do know the bro wanted his coat. He wanted the melly. Like he wanted his melly. And so he asked for it. And just contextually with the story, uh, Timothy's in Ephesus, uh, which is just south of Troas. And so he knows if Timothy's going to make every effort to come to me, he's going to go north to Troas, and then he's going to traverse on a ship across the waterways to get to where Paul is. So he's like, it would be easy for you to get my coat, so get it, because I want it, please. Um, But I think more important around the coat is that he wanted his scrolls and he wanted his parchments. Uh, He had physical needs. He had spiritual needs. Most scholars that I read this week believe that the scrolls were Paul's own Old Testament writings. Um, Paul wanted the word. Bring me my Bible. This is Summer's Bible. Some high school students gave this to me. Her her name's here. This is the Bible I preach from. This is my Bible. It's has a lot of things written in it. It has a lot of history with me. I can only imagine at the end of my life, I'm like, get me Summer's Bible. I need her Bible. Paul, like, you feel that emotionally? Like, I need my scrolls. Timothy, get me. I need the word. I need to touch it. I need to see it. I need to read it. I need my scrolls. I need my parchments. Parchments were, um, they were, scrolls were on scrolls, um, and parchments were on like goat skin or sheep skin. And so he had both of those things, and he needed and wanted both of them um, for encouragement. Here's what we 
Here's what we, we know about Paul at the end of his life. People mattered to him, and the word of God mattered to him. And that cloak, and, and that cloak mattered to him as well. Um, when I was a student pastor at a church that I was privileged to care and teach young people, 2003, 2006, I started making this statement. I don't know how this statement came to be, but it was like one of those things that even, even I mean, they're all adults now. This is a long time ago, 20 years ago, but um, I would just say this a lot to our students because I wanted to center them on the things that really, really matter in life because there's a whole lot of things in life that don't matter that we give attention to. Would you agree with that? There's a lot of things in life that are vying for your attention and they just don't matter. And so I was trying as a student pastor to get people centered in Jesus. And what I would say to them often was really only three things in life truly matter because only three things in life truly move from this life to the next. So if you want, to, if you want your life to matter and you want your life to have purpose Engage your life in things that really matter. God, his word, and people. God, his word, and people. And so I would say that statement a lot. Really, only three things matter because only three things last. God, his word, and people. And I don't think that only applies to teenagers. I think that applies to everyone. And that's what I see Paul saying here. At the end of his life, I need God's people with me. I need God's word with me. This is life. I need my scrolls. I need my parchments. This is life. And I need God's presence with me. And he certainly had God's presence with him. He's reminded of the first time he was in Rome in prison in verse 17. The Lord stood by my side and gave me strength. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me. I am going to die a martyr's death. It is time for my departure I know this. I'm convinced of this. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely home to his heavenly kingdom for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. This is lament in action for Paul, verse 17 and 18. Like if you're like, okay, we've been talking about lament. You did a series on lament. I'm not really totally connected to it. Awesome light. On that, verse 17 and 18 is lament in action in the life of Paul. He is holding the ground between his life circumstances and glory. And it is beautiful to see faith in action. God's people, God's word, God's presence, the only three things that truly matter. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If you believe that, if you believe what I'm saying, if you're, if you're listening and considering that only three things truly matter, God, his word, and people, then what do you need to do in your life to foster deeper, more rooted connection in your life, in your faith, to a relationship with God, being in his word, and giving your life to people? Because those are the only three things that matter, because they're the only three things that last beyond this life. And so my encouragement and exhortation to us is let us learn and be disciplined. Not just learn, but be disciplined to keep the main things, the main things. Here we go. 
Finish it up. Final greetings. He tells Timothy, greet Priscilla and Aquila or Aquila, whatever, like this morning. So <laughs> I, when I, when that, when I like try to learn names that I don't know how to pronounce, like I will listen to the, like the Bible app and the, you know, the, the, the fancy guy that reads, you know, you, know, you guys know what I'm talking about. And so I did that like three times today, this morning at like seven in the morning. I'm like listening to him like, all right, but I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm going to blow these names up. I can hardly even remember how they pronounced them. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. We learned about Onesiphorus in chapter one of 2 Timothy. Erastus stayed in Corinth. I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Why would he say that? Because it's getting cold and I need my cloak. <laughs> I mean, for real. You know what I'm saying? It's like when you're, when you're camping and it's like below freezing, you better have your zero degree bag or you're in for a long night. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and also... The passageway between Troas and where Paul was in Rome freezes over the winter. So if he lingers too long, hey, there's no way he's going to get across. So he's just like, and for real, bro, for real, bro, get on your horse and get here, man. I need you here and I need my cloak. I love it, man. He's just a real dude. <laughs> Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you. And so does, and so do Putin's. Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. Okay, fair question right now. Who knew, who knew that Linus was in the Bible? For real, I need a show of hands. Who had no idea before right now that Linus was in the Bible? Be honest, thank you. I did. My dad loves Charlie Brown. I'm reading this. this I'm like, Linus is in the Bible? Linus was a bro with Paul? That's so fantastic. I had no idea. I had no idea. I just think that's so fun. Priscilla and Aquila, man, they mattered. They mattered to Paul. Priscilla, Aquila, husband and wife pastors, church leaders. Paul mentions them four times in four different letters. He mentions them in Acts 18. He mentions them, or Luke does in Acts 18. He mentions them in 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 16, and 1 Timothy 4. So Paul mentions them three times. Luke mentions them in the original story in Acts 18. They were co-laborers with Paul, and he loved them. Onesiphorus is an echo from chapter 1, verses 16 to 18 in 2 Timothy. You remember the story? Paul was in prison, and he, he honored Onesiphorus. He goes, he searched hard for me until he found me. Erastus is mentioned in Romans 16 as well. Uh, Trophimus served alongside Timothy and Paul in Acts 20 and Acts 21. And literally, we know nothing else about Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia. We know nothing else about them other than what, what Paul mentions here. All we know is they were Paul's people and they were in his community. That's, that's really all we know of them. And that's the big point. Paul had a community around him. Yes, he was the Apostle Paul. Yes, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. 
All that's true, but he was not superhuman. He had relational needs. He had emotional needs. He had physical needs. He had spiritual needs, and he needed his people. And so that's what we see in this passage. All the brothers and sisters, people, people, people. And I really love this section. I really love this conclusion. I think we could just skip over this and like move along sometimes because it's like, well, he's just greeting. He's just talking about his people. And I just thought, you guys, we need our people. Like you need your people. I need my people. And people are hard. And people are messy. And people are people. But we need our People. He feels the sadness and pain of being deserted by many, and, and he feels the joy and the gratitude of his work, of his life work with so many of his friends, and we have to learn to hold both. I can tell you after 20 years of ministry, in relational ministry, if you do not learn to hold that some people are going to disappoint you and they are going to desert you and they are going to move to another city and you will not hear from them again. And hold the people in your life that go with you all the way. You will not last very long in relational ministry because it's just the reality. People are beautiful and people are messy. People are people. And what we see in this passage is both. Paul's holding both. Here's a, an insight into Paul's mission. He writes to the church in Colossae, and he makes this passionate statement about gospel ministry. And he says, we proclaim him. We proclaim Jesus, and we're going to admonish and teach everyone. We want to we teach everyone we can with all wisdom so that we may present everyone. The heart and desire is to present everyone perfect in Christ. But he has stories of Demas and Alexander the metal worker. His heart was, but real life is real life. We have to accept life and people the way life and real life people are. And so he says, to this end I labor and I struggle with all his energy, with all the energy of Jesus, which is the energy of empowerment which so powerfully works within me. Jesus empowers me not to quit. Even when people walk away, disappoint me, hurt me. This was his calling and passion. And we learn from 1 Timothy 4 that his efforts, and he had a lot of effort, and he labored, but his efforts were not always relationally successful, were they? They just weren't. That's just reality. And that's ministry. It's life. It's beautiful, hard. But to this, to this end, we are called and we labor. And with that, the benediction. And it's not going to surprise you how he finishes it. He finishes it with grace because he starts it with grace and he ends with grace. And every letter that Paul writes, he starts with grace and he ends with grace. It's grace on grace. I don't, I don't make this stuff up. This is the way the scriptures are written. Timothy, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Worship team, you guys can come back up. Paul has made his feelings clear. 
He has exhorted his son in the faith clearly and boldly. He has passed the baton of ministry to Timothy, and he has given Timothy closure on their relationship. It truly was time for his departure to die as gain. And so he says the last thing that the Apostle Paul ever penned in the scripture, the words of God to Timothy, to the church in Ephesus, and to all of you. The Lord be with your spirit. Way down in here. Way, way, way down in here. Grace, God's unmerited favor, be with all of you. Amen. Let's continue to worship this morning.